Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today, church family. Um, It's a pleasure and a privilege and an honor uh, to get to bring God's word to us this morning. Um, If if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Murray Nickel. I'm the director of Youth and Family Ministries here at Redeemer, Uh, soon to be assistant pastor, uh, having recently in the last couple weeks passed my uh, final uh, uh, exams for ordination, praise God. Um, And and I just want to say thank you to you all um, throughout this process of exam, uh, exams, studying, all that stuff. uh, I just want to say thank you for your prayers, uh, for uh, checking in every once in a while and asking how it's going, for uh, being excited uh, with and for me in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the Lord has just been so faithful, um, not only through this season of studying and, and trials of ordination, but also in calling me to this place and to this church, um, a church that has just really cared and loved me and my wife, Addie, so well. Um, so we are thankful to the Lord for you. We're going to be in Revelation 3. This morning, uh, verses 1 to 6, you can go ahead and turn there now. It's the uh, letter to the church at Sardis. Uh, As you're turning there, you know, you you may remember, um, as I've said previously, that I I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. I spent the first 10 years of my life there. And because of that, I am an enormous Nebraska football fan. Uh, Living in Lincoln, uh, it's pretty much inescapable. The university in that city is everything. And the football team is everything particularly in the, in the 90s. In that 10 years, Nebraska won six conference championships. They won three national championships. They were perennially a top 10, often a top five team. It was, it was a great thing to be a Nebraska fan in the 90s. The problem with being a Nebraska fan now is that Nebraska hasn't even played in a conference championship since 2012. They've not even sniffed a national championship. In fact, as of yesterday, they're on their way to their fifth consecutive season in which they've lost more games than they've won. And yet, if you talk to a Nebraska fan about Nebraska football, we usually don't really want to talk about our present reality. We don't want to talk about what's going on now. We would much rather talk to you about the 90s. Regardless of how bad it gets in the present, Husker fans, speaking as one, I can say this because I am one, uh, we have a tendency to cling to the name of the 90s, that, that reputation of greatness that we built, when in reality that greatness has faded. Well, the same is true for the city of Sardis. You know, Sardis had this reputation as a city of greatness, of safety, of security, of prosperity, in, in history, it went back, the city went back all the way to the time of Troy in, in the 6th century BC. And as a city, it had kind of the best of everything. It was situated in, in two parts, uh, with trade routes running in all different directions right by the city. Um, the, the lower part of the city was situated in this really fertile river valley with access to clean water, to, to resources, to game. The, the upper part of the city was situated on this spur, right, this jutting out of a mountain, uh, protected on one side by the face of the mountain, and on the other three sides by, by these steep cliff faces. Uh, archaeologists think probably about 1,500 feet potentially high. And thanks, uh, thanks to all of these things, thanks to its wealth, its, its access to resources, its access to water, Sardis was known as a prestigious city. 
a safe city, a secure city. It was considered to be impregnable. You couldn't get into it. And yet, thanks to the cliffs which, which protected it, the, the, the walls were often left unguarded, particularly at night. Why, why, why would we need to stay up at night? Nobody can get in. And yet it was at night, while the guards were asleep, that in the, in, the 500s, in the 500s BC, King Cyrus came and saw a particular path up the wall. And at night he sent one man up the, scaling the side of the wall of Sardis while the guards slept and letting in the rest of the army, taking it by force. Well, you would think that the city would learn its lesson, but actually 200 years later, another king read of Cyrus's victory and did the exact same thing. Once again, while the guard slept. See, as a, as a city, Sardis had this reputation, this name of safety, of comfort, of favor. But the reality of Sardis was that it had fallen asleep to its vulnerability. And what we're going to find in this letter is that the church at Sardis, the church at Sardis had taken on some of that same attitude, that same condition, that same sleepiness. It was, it was a church that was clinging to the name of life. It was clinging to a reputation of liveliness. But what we find out is that it had fallen asleep to the reality of its condition. And honestly, I think the same can be true of us, particularly in the Western church. You know, we, we enjoy a, a reputation, a name of, of comfort, of safety, of favor that is largely unheard of in most of the world. And because of that, we can have all of the outward signs of liveliness, right? We can have churches with sprawling campuses, bustling programs, events, activities. In our families, we can have comfortable, safe homes and safe neighborhoods and, and, and um, well-thought-of schools. We can be members of, of Bible studies, of, of youth groups, of, of Sunday school and committees. And these are not bad things, but we can, we can do these things, we can have these things and be lulled to sleep, Jesus says. Lulled to sleep to our actual reality, just like the church at Sardis. And it might, just be, it might just be that just like the church at Sardis, we need someone to wake us up. But wake up to what? Well, let's, let's read Revelation 3, 1 to 6 and see what answers we find. Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, we come to you with humility. God, we ask that you, by the work of your Spirit, 
which Jesus has and gives to us freely, God, we ask that by your spirit, you would move among us. God, if we are asleep, wake us up by your spirit. Enliven our obedience through your word and enliven our view of of the hope of the life you call us to. God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the message of Jesus to this church at Sardis and and to us is is wake up, (laughs) wake up. More literally, that, that, that the wording of wake up, it's the idea of, of a state of wakefulness, remain awake. And we see in, the, in this passage, in the middle of our sleep, Jesus wants to wake us up, wants us to be continually awake to three things. The danger of the life we want, the fullness of the life we're called to, and the hope of the life he promises. So look with me first in the, at the first couple of verses where we see that Jesus wants to wake us up to the danger of the life that we want. Uh, Verse 1, Jesus begins, as he does every letter to the churches in Revelation, right, with this this self-description of himself taken uh, from chapter 1, the initial vision given to John. We see from the end, he says that I hold, I have the seven stars. It's the second time that Jesus has used this identifier for himself. He used it in the letter to the church at Ephesus. And we find if we go back to chapter one, that these seven stars represent the the angels of the churches, right? These these warrior angels that guard and protect and preserve the church. And Jesus says, I have them, I hold them. But what do we make of this idea of Jesus having the seven spirits of God? Well, if we go again back to chapter one, verse four, we see John reference these seven spirits of God. He says that they are before God's throne. So what are these seven spirits? Well, like we've said throughout this series on Revelation, numbers in Revelation are really important and they're rarely just numbers. And again, seven is a number used throughout scripture and especially throughout Revelation to describe a sense of wholeness, completeness. So so when Jesus says, when Revelation speaks of the seven spirits of God, it's a figurative way that the book speaks of the one whole spirit of God, the true Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So so Jesus describes himself then to this church as the one who has the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the one who can give that Spirit. And as we will see as we get further into this letter, just like the previous letters, the way that Jesus describes himself to the church has much to do with his knowing of the church, his diagnosis of the church. So what of Jesus' knowing of this church at Sardis? Well, he says, I know your works. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's pretty jarring. In, In other letters up to this point, Jesus generally has begun with a commendation, right? Here's what you're doing good. Now let's talk about the lack that I see in you, your need. But here he jumps straight to a rebuke. It's as if Jesus is coming to this church and shaking them saying, I cannot let you sleep a minute longer. Wake up. You're dead. So what does he say about them? He says, you have the reputation of being alive. That word reputation, it's it's the Greek word that's used for name. 
He says, I, I know, church at Sardis, I know you have built a name for yourself, a name of being alive, but you are dead. Why? Look at the end of verse two. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You know, it's interesting. This is one of, if not, if not the harshest letter in Revelation 2 to 3, and yet it provides us with probably the least context and is one of the shortest letters. I mean, just think about what we've heard about these other churches up to this point. There's no mention of the Nicolaitans. There's no mention of them living in the synagogue of Satan. There's no Balaam or, or, or Jezebel. There's, there's no comment on persecution, suffering, coercion at all. Why? Well, one commentator said, because that is exactly the point. You know, the problem in the church at Sardis, it was not a particular group outside or inside of the church. It wasn't persecution. It wasn't coercion. The problem of the church of Sardis was the church itself. Because just like the city around it, the church at Sardis had developed a very curated name, a reputation for being alive. When in reality, it was a church that was in dire straits. It was wasting away. Commentators offer, they all offer all sorts of ideas of, of what this might have meant in Sardis and at this church. Perhaps it was in, in this church having all of the trappings of church life, you know, commitment to doing the church things, meeting together, praying, worshiping together, sitting under the Bible outwardly. But without allowing the gospel, without allowing the word of God to disrupt the comfortable rhythms and patterns of life, or to call them into meaningful mission of witness in their city. Perhaps it was in their refusal to speak up in the middle of their culture. So as not to risk uh, being pushed to the edge, not to risk losing favor among their, among their peers, being pushed to the margins of, of society, or worse, so as not to undergo persecution or suffering as many of the earlier churches in Revelation 2 to 3 had experienced. We're not sure exactly what the particular issue in, in this church was, but generally, it's clear from Jesus' words that this was a church that above all pursued a name of life because it was comfortable, it was safe, it allowed for prosperity and favor. But the reality is that Jesus is not about name or reputation that we can make for ourselves. No, he looks past that. He looks down under it and he sees the reality. And so he says to this church at Sardis, you are dead. You have worked so hard to perfect a name of being alive. So much so that you are alive, but in name only. There's no substance. Because you're doing it for the wrong motivation. You're not, you're not doing any of these things out of love for me and the life that I give. You know, all around my hometown in North Carolina and actually all over the South, there's a vine called kudzu. Uh, maybe you've heard of it, uh, but in case you haven't, uh, kudzu is a plant that, that originated in Japan. Uh, it was brought to the U.S. in the 1870s um, and, and it was brought over and admired because as an ornamental plant, right, like ivy. People would plant it around their homes so it would grow up the side of their homes across gates and they loved it because it had this beautifully sweet, it has this beautifully sweet smelling bloom. And it's a really sturdy vine. It's, it easily grows up things. 
Because of its sturdiness, it also then went on to become used, especially in the Blue Ridge Mountains, for, uh, to prevent uh, soil erosion. They plant the, the, the roots of the vine would act as a kind of a guard against soil eroding out. But, but what people didn't expect about kudzu was just how quickly and easily it would grow. It's now called by some the vine that ate the south because kudzu has outcompeted pretty much any plant in its path. So much so that, that you can find huge sections of forest in the Blue Ridge Mountains that are just covered as high as you can see and as far as you can see in kudzu. The problem is that all, all of that plant life under that kudzu is being starved of the necessary nutrients, the necessary sunlight for it to grow. And kudzu has little by little been killing off huge swaths of plant life, even entire plant species. You know, on, on the surface, it looks like the forest is thriving, right? You, it's green as far as you can see. And yet if you were to peel back that vine, when you peel back that vine, what you see is death, dying plants. See, this is not unlike the image that's painted of the church at Sardis. Above all, they, they, they have pursued this name of life, this appearance of life, of liveliness, a reputation of growth, vitality, safety, comfortability. It was a reputation that they wanted, and it was a reputation that they had largely achieved. And yet, Jesus says he wants more for his church. And so he comes to them, and he says, wake up. Wake up to the danger of running after that appearance of life, the veneer of life. However comfortable and favorable and secure it might feel, that is so much less than the life I've come to call you to. So, so what of us? I wonder, are, are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus' command to wake up? Are we aware of our condition? Or are we happy to do the church things, claiming the name of Jesus, attending church regularly, whether in person, online, maybe even joining a women's or men's Bible study, perhaps even serving in the church? Are we happy to do these things so long as our comfortable patterns and rhythms are, are left largely alone? Are we pleased to be in relationship with our brothers and sisters sharing some semblance of life with them so long as we can keep them and ourselves at a safe distance so as not to have to dig into those messier corners, those darker corners of life? Are we willing to, to spend time in relationship with, with our unbelieving neighbors, our coworkers, our friends at school, so long as it doesn't threaten my reputation, so long as it doesn't require sacrifice, potentially even suffering, in order to bring the gospel to bear? in these areas of my relationships. See, Jesus is saying to Sardis and to us, please don't be lulled in to sleep, into false confidence with the appearance of life. Be willing to look under, look under. Because real, real life is not found in the appearance of life. So, so where is it found? Look with me at, at verses two to four where we see that Jesus wants to wake us not only, not only to the danger of the life that we want, but the fullness of life that he calls us into. There are five commands throughout this passage. In verse two, he says, wake up and strengthen. 
And then in verse 3, he says, remember, keep, and repent. Jesus begins in verse 2 by saying, Sardis, wake up and strengthen that which remains and is about to die. You see, though this church is in dire straits, Jesus is saying, you are not beyond, you are not beyond the life that I offer. In fact, he says, even in, even in you, Church of Sardis, there is still a remnant of belief and practice. Some, some little glimmer, some little ember of life that I give, though incomplete. So the call of Jesus to this church on the edge of spiritual death is, is to fan into flame that ember of life, to fan it into flame. So what, is, what does that look like? What's these other three commands? He says, remember, in verse 3, what you received and heard. Remember, Jesus says. Literally, it's, it's bare in your mind. It's the second, you might, you might recognize this command. It's the same command he gives to the church at Ephesus. Jesus calling them away from the fond, nostalgic memory of their reputation of liveliness into a type of remembering, a type of bearing in mind that allows what happened in the past to shape the present. He says, bear in mind the word of life you received as a gift. The word of life that you received and heard from the Spirit. The word of life that found you when you were dead and brought you to life by the power of the Spirit opening your ears to hear it and respond in faith and obedience. But don't only remember it, he says, But as you remember, as you do bear in mind this word of life, he says, keep and repent. Keep it and repent. Turn from the death that lies underneath that appearance of life, that veneer of reputation, and turn rather towards the full life, the full life offered to you in that word of life, one that's full of of joy and obedience, one that's full of purpose and meaning that actually stretches far beyond the comfort, the security that comes with the appearance of life. It's a life that doesn't just stop at skin level, but fills us from the inside out. So where does it come from? How, do we, how does Jesus call us into this life? Well, this is where verse one comes back into play. Jesus says he's the one who has the seven spirits of God or the one true spirit of God. He tells the church of Sardis, the way that I call you into this life is by giving you my spirit. I am the one who gives it, and I am the one who does it, not you. It is not through fighting to hold on to reputation. It's not through fighting to hold on to comfort and safety. It comes from my authority as the one who has given you the very spirit of God to give life to your mortal bodies, as Paul says, so that you can be invited into this fullness of life with roots that go way deeper than than the blanket of comfort and security and favor that comes with the name of life, the appearance of life. A life where you're not just alive in name only. The source is, is the hand of Jesus himself by the Spirit's power at work within us. So then how do we know that we have it? How do we know that we are awake to the life we're called into? I think a good diagnostic question for us to ask ourselves 
is as I go through my week, what am I bearing in mind most of all? Is it the appearance, is it the appearance of, of life that I've cultivated, of liveliness in myself, that, that I'm, I'm the one who, who has it together, who doesn't need anything, who can do all the things. I don't really need, I don't really need anything. I've got it. Forgetting that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is what I'm bearing in mind my, my comfort? Choosing to avoid those uncomfortable uh, places in myself, in my family, in my neighborhood, my city, that, that make me feel out of my element by kind of stopping up my ears, by filling my, my time with activity and noise so that I don't have to enter into those places. Or, or, or avoiding those uncomfortable people, the people that are difficult for me to love, the people that don't look like me, that don't think like me. Forgetting that Jesus came as a man who did not, who did not avoid discomfort. Now Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, a friend of sinners, those who hated him. You see, the life that Jesus calls us into does not promise us a life of comfort and security or even that it will look like life to the world. But that does not mean that the life he calls us into is not a full life. I was hanging out with a, a member of this church this last week, Andrew King, and, and uh, he was asking how my sermon was going and I was telling him about this, this idea of, of waking up to the life that Jesus calls us into. And Andrew was talking about you know how Life with Jesus, it goes beyond what I desire. It, it answers my deepest longings. It goes beyond what I might want in this life, my dreams in this life, and it answers my deepest longings. And he was telling me uh, about something he read once uh, about Chronicles of Narnia and the theme particularly of waking up and how it generally is, is waking up to something far grander than you could imagine. So it got my, the wheels turning in my head. I was like, well, I need an illustration for my, for my second point. And so I went home and I started searching through the books, through the series, and I came across this quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's shortly after the children have arrived in Narnia, and they're with Mr. Beaver, and he mentions the name Aslan for the first time. He says, I hear Aslan is back. And then it says this, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver spoke these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it, had, perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror Peter suddenly felt brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. You see, the life we're called into is filled with a fullness well beyond the veneer that comes with the appearance of life. That, 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 com that momentary comfort and security. It's an awakening. It's a waking up to a depth of life we couldn't possibly imagine. 
That is the spirit-empowered life that Jesus desires for his church. And it's a life he will not let his church compromise. And that's why we read at the end of verse 3, Jesus says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That image probably sounds familiar. It's used by Jesus in the Gospels to describe the unexpectedness of his return in glory to judge the world. But, but here, Jesus says it's conditional. He will, he will come like a thief if the church of Sardis does not wake up. And so, so it's generally agreed that Jesus has some other type of judgment in mind here, some other type of coming in mind here. Likely a, a, a moment in, in this church's history where he would come against them in judgment. Remember, remember the, the historical context of this church. You know, Sardis's weakness had been exposed not once, but twice, while they peacefully slept, assuming that they were safe, holding on to that reputation of safety, security, comfort. And, and so what Jesus tells the church of Sardis is, if you do not wake up, if you do not wake up from that false sense of comfort, I will come to you to purify and expose to you just how great your need for the life only I can give is. I'm not willing to let you go on living in false safety. See, Jesus wakes us to the life we're called to, a life, a life where I'm not clinging to, to the appearance of life in me, where I'm not resting my security, my hope, my comfort in, in the name of life where I'm clinging to the name of Jesus, the reputation, the security of Jesus as life himself. So what is the security offered in Jesus? If, if the life he's calling me into is not one where, where, my, where my desires in this life will necessarily be met, what is the security offered? Well, look with me finally, verses four to five. We see the hope of the life we're promised. That Jesus wants to wake us to the hope of the life we're promised. Verse 4, Jesus says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, Jesus does not just come, Jesus does not just purify his church, he also preserves his church. Even in this church at Sardis, Jesus says, the church that he called, that he's already called dead and asleep, wasting away. Even here, Jesus says there are names, there are people who have not compromised the life they're, call, they're called to by, by clinging to some appearance of life, by doing all of the things without any of the life within them. Rather, they're clinging to the name of Jesus, remembering what they received and heard by the Spirit, responding in re repentance and obedience, empowered, enabled by the Spirit within them. And to these, Jesus promises, you will walk with me in white. And think, think of the benefit this is to this dying church. It's the presence of these faithful few, Christ's preservation of these, that, that hope for revival in this church comes from. It's Christ preserving these few. And so Jesus extends the promise then to any who will respond. He says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will actually confess his name before my Father 
and before his angels. See, Jesus promises first white garments. This calls us forward. If you're sitting at the church of Sardis and you're hearing this letter read to your church and you hear this promise, you you likely are thinking, I don't quite know what that means. I don't know what that looks like or how I get those garments quite. You fast forward to chapter seven and all of a sudden you hear these words. Then one of the elders addressed me, that's John, saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, what Jesus is saying is the one who conquers is the one who understands that they have a deeper longing than just the appearance of life a deeper longing than the security and comfort that that might offer, a longing to be made pure and whole, a longing to be able to walk in friendship, in intimate friendship with Jesus. And the only way, the only way we were made pure and whole is not by trying harder. It is not by holding on to the the appearance of life, the trappings of life. It is by being washed in the blood of the lamb slain for us. But it is not only the state of being whole and pure that Jesus promises. Jesus also says he eternally secures our reputation, our name. He says, I will write his name in the book of life and will never blot it out. You might be be hearing that, that word, name, over and over. That's because it's a thread that runs all throughout this passage beginning all the way back in verse, in verse one where Jesus says, you have the reputation, the name of being alive. We all, we all want a name that isn't forgotten, don't we? Isn't that something we all want? When I was younger, I have a brother who's about a year and a half, two years younger than me. So we'd often be at the same things together. And it was really common, his name is Rob, and it was really common for him to be called Murray, for me to be called Robbie, And I knew it was never intentional. I knew that people didn't mean to do that. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't wasn't a little bit frustrated, sometimes even a little bit hurt, especially if it was a family member. I wanted my name to matter enough to be remembered. It's a really small scale, but I wanted my name to matter enough to be remembered. You know, in Sardis at this time, it was common for each city to have a ledger with every citizen's name written in it. And and when you died, they would strike your name out. They They would erase it. They would blot it out. But but Jesus says that for those who've been washed in his blood, who have entered life in him, by the power of the spirit at work within them, he says, I will write their name in the eternal book of life and will never blot it out. Jesus says, I will not forget your name. In fact, I promise I will secure it for all eternity. And not only that, but the name that he secures, he also approves. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. See, it is the image of not only eternal security, but of a reputation and a name that is eternally approved of by the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. 
You see, life that Jesus promises us, the life that he promises us that he wants us to be awake to is not a life in which our name disappears. It's not a life in which our reputation doesn't matter or is, or is wiped away as insignificant, but in which our name and reputation is made white as snow, secured forever and approved of by God himself. A life in which we walk in intimate, whole relationship with Jesus. See, that is, that is the life that Jesus gives. And so in verse six, he says, finally, like he ends every letter with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. The same spirit that I have, the same spirit that I give to you to work life in you. So he says, wake up. Wake up to the danger of the life you want. It will not give you the security, the reputation, the comfort that you long for. Wake up, Jesus says, to the life that I'm calling you to, a life of spirit-empowered obedience, spirit-enabled mission to bring that same word of life that you received as a gift to the edges, to the margins. And wake up, Jesus says, to the hope of the life I promise you, a life where you are made pure and whole, where your name, your reputation is found in me, and in me it is secured for all eternity, and in me it is approved of by the Father himself. A name that I confess before my Father with joy. Wake up. Wake up to a life that, you, that, that is far better, just like Narnia, far better than you can possibly imagine. A life lived walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, God, we, we thank you that you are not willing to let us live in false security, in false confidence that we are alive when really there's just the appearance of life. Father, if we are asleep, if I am asleep, Father, wake me up, wake us up. Wake us up to the life, the danger of the life that, that we are pursuing. Wake us up to the fullness of the life you call us to. Wake us up to the hope of the life you've promised. God, we ask that you would do this as the only one who can do it by giving us your spirit, by working life in us by the power of your spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.